when I was younger in my Christian faith, I remember hearing many testimonies um, of people, how they heard the voice of God, how they saw angels, how they spoke in tongues, they had dreams and visions, they experienced great spiritual experiences, even there were eyewitnesses or recipients of direct intervening miracles from God. I remember being very, very impressed, I guess, very moved by such testimonies and seeking out such signs for my own Christian walk. I remember asking God, seeking out such experiences, going to meetings and being in prayer, wanting to experience some tangible um, experience God in some tangible way through some signs, wonders, and miracles. In the Korean Christian community, they these, these things called prayer mountains. And these are literally caves and mountains in like Palmdale or Riverside. And you go and you spend, you can just pray there and, and read the word. I remember going to prayer mountains by myself um, many times and walking and praying and seeking the Lord and seeking such signs. Well, what is the relationship between signs, wonders, and miracles and genuine faith? Do they aid in faith? Do they give faith, convince people of the genuineness of the gospel and grant salvation? Or are they hindrances to true faith? Are they hindrances to true faith? I believe in our passage today, in our study today, we'll find some answers to this question. Well, to begin our study, um, go with me to John chapter 20. John is unlike the gospel writer Luke. Luke, in his first paragraph, outlines the purpose of his gospel. Well, John, he waits until the end. He's got the key hanging on the back door, not the front door. To find out why he wrote this gospel, we've got to turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And he writes there that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now in verse 30, I want you to notice that word signs. In verse 30, the Greek word is simeon. It is a particular word employed by John to describe the miracles of our Lord, the miracles that he performed during his earthly ministry. John uses this word Simeon 17 times. The American Standard Version rightly translates each word, signs, uniformly translates it as signs. Now the gospel writers, the synaptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use different words for miracles. They use dunamis, right, dynamite, power. They use teras, and they also use simeon to denote works of miracles. But John uses this word simeon exclusively for all the miracles of Christ, signs. Meaning everything that Christ did was a sign pointing to something, pointing to a spiritual reality. A commentator, Raymond Brown, therefore regards this book, this gospel, as the book of signs. Book of signs. Well, John says in verse 30 that Jesus did many other miraculous signs. He tells us that not all of them are recorded in the gospel. Meaning he had to be an editor. 
there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of, of miracles that Jesus performed while he was on earth. But he couldn't write all of them down in one book because there was not enough room, he says later on, for one book. So he had to edit. He had to reduce. And he reduced them to eight signs, eight miracles of Christ. And these eight, we studied this a few months ago, give structure to this Gospel of John. He's not haphazardly writing this account of Christ. He has eight signs that he wants to highlight, and that gives the structure of this Gospel. Seven are before the resurrection, and one, the final one, is the resurrection. As I said, we went through this uh, several months ago. Let me review with them, review them with you uh, for the sake, because um, it would be good for your reference in our, in our current study of the Gospel of John. I'll go through these eight very slowly. You might want to write these down. Again, it will help you for your reference in studying this Gospel. Now the first sign that John tells us about is in John chapter 2, 1 through 11. That was the wedding at Cana, when our Lord transformed water into wine. That was the first sign, John chapter 2, 1 through 11. The second sign is the one we are studying this morning, the healing of the nobleman's son, John 4, 46 through 54. These both occur at his hometown, or in his home region, Galilee, uh, in the city of Cana. The third sign is the healing of the man at Bethsaida. Healing of the man at Bethsaida. Uh, John 5, 1 through 10. This is when he goes back to Jerusalem and he heals a man there on the Sabbath. The fourth miracle is the most public miracle of Christ. You might know this. It's the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. This is the watershed miracle of our Lord's career. This miracle marked the height of his popularity. It brought him the largest audience ever. Matthew states that 5,000 men participated and ate of this. He already recorded the men. So the actual number was far greater than 5,000, maybe even surpassing 10,000 men, women, and children. The fifth sign follows closely after the fourth one, and that's our Lord walking on the Sea of Galilee. In John chapter 6, 16 through 21, this event, he goes from the most public to the most private. He turns from 10,000 to his disciples. His disciples are the only, one, only ones who witness this miracle. The sixth sign is the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. And here, I believe the reason John records this because this really heightens the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. This really brings their, the animosity of the Jewish leaders to the front. And you see this drama building towards the crucifixion. John chapter, um, the seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus. John 11, 1 through 44. And the eighth and the final sign is the Lord's resurrection. Again, John organized his gospel around these eight signs. They are cumulative in nature. They, are, they successively build on one another. And with the greatest sign, the greatest miracle being his resurrection from death. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I want to spend some time considering the purposes of Jesus' signs and wonders. 
the purposes of Jesus' signs and wonders. Why did Jesus perform these miracles? Why? I think the answers, or at least the second answer, will surprise you. Right. For example, so if you're, it will be very instructive to you. If you are today looking for a sign, maybe you're not a Christian, you're looking for a sign to confirm the veracity of the Bible. Or maybe if you know someone who's kind of sitting on the fence, saying, I want to believe, but I can't because there is no valid reason to. I'm looking for a miracle. I'm looking, I want to hear the voice of God. I want to see a dream, see a vision. Um, these words be very instructive for them and maybe for you. There are two purposes of Jesus' signs and wonders. Two purposes. First of all, they were revelatory in nature. Revelatory in nature. Meaning each sign was a revelation of Jesus Christ. It revealed his true identity. The signs revealed something and it, it revealed the identity of Christ revealed Jesus' glory. <clears throat> Turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> After his first miraculous sign in, in Cana, John says, after he performed the sign, performed at Cana in Galilee, <clears throat> he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The effect of the first sign was that Christ's glory was revealed. The sign manifested the glory of Christ because it revealed that he was not just a normal man. He was not just like another guy. He had power that was supernatural. He had um, um, authority beyond comprehension and revealed a glimpse of the glory of Christ. In John chapter 11, verse 4, I'll just read to you guys this. When he heard about Lazarus dying, being sick, and that he will, and he, Christ knew he would die, our Lord responded by saying, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Lazarus is sick, and he will die, because, quote, that the Son of God may be glorified by it, end quote. John 11, verse 4. And in fact, later on in verse 40, he tells his disciples, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? By them believing, they saw the glory of Christ. They saw the divine nature, the divine majesty of Christ. Although he appeared as a human being and he lived subject to human limitations, he went hungry, he went tired, he slept, he was hungry, and yet when he performed these signs, they saw something in him that no man possessed. That was the divine glory of God himself. So first of all, his works revealed his real nature. It was a foretaste of his future glory that is to come when he comes for the second time. The second purpose of our Lord's signs and wonders, this is the controversial one. Most believe that the purpose of these miraculous signs is to cause people to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I think that's the common um, common view that Christ performed these miracles so that people might believe in his name. And so verses that are used to support that are John 2:11. After the miracle in Cana, his disciples put their faith in him. 
John 11:45. after the raising of Lazarus, after the Jews had seen what Jesus did, verse 45, they put their faith in him. And then the purpose, purpose statement we read in John chapter 20, our Lord did many other miraculous signs. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the common view, the majority view. That was my view until this past Thursday. Um, others believe that the purpose of Jesus' miracles was not to cause people to believe in him, but to confirm the faith of those who already believed in him. He performed these signs and wonders not to convince people that he is God, that he is the Messiah. He performed these signs and wonders to confirm the faith of those who already believed that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. You know, I wrestled with this question all week long. I, I wrestled till 8.30 this morning. I, I got to stop wrestling because it's time to preach, time to come to a conclusion. Again, were these signs intended to convince someone and lead them to faith? Or were these signs given to confirm an already existing faith? I believe that the latter is correct. That Christ did not perform these miracles, begging people, believe in me, look, what, look at all these things I can do. He's juggling all these miracles. Please, someone believe. No. His miracles were displayed before the world but it was designed for those who already believed. To edify them. To build them up. To confirm their pre-existing faith. Now why do I believe this? For various reasons. I'll go through them. One clear glaring um, evidence is the response of the crowds. The response of the Jewish leaders. I mean, if, when, and when you and I read the Gospels, we're struck by the blindness of the Pharisees. The blindness of the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish crowds. Because they all saw the miracles of Christ. They, they did not uh, hear someone who saw, heard someone saw this miracle. They were eyewitnesses of the miracles of Christ, Matthew 9. Also the populace, the public, in John 6, 5,000 ate the bread. They ate the fish. They not only saw the miracle, they were partakers of the miracle. And yet in verse 26 of John 6, when these crowds, they, they scatter out through the area of Galilee. They, they, they get on boats to, to go to Capernaum to find Christ. He says to them, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The Lord himself says, you're looking for me for your own vested interests. It is not because you want salvation. It is not because you want your sins forgiven. It is not because I'm the son of God. You're looking for me because of what you want. Of selfish motivations. That is why in Matthew 12, 39, what does he say? A wicked and adulterous generations, generation asks for a miraculous sign. When someone asks for a sign or a miracle or a wonder from God, it is motivated by sin, by wickedness, by a, a, a heart that is lustful. Our Lord commences his public ministry in, John, in the Gospel of John ends at chapter 12. And chapter 12 all the way to 21 is a passion week. The upper room discourse, 
his, his uh, agony at Gethsemane and his crucifixion, his ministry ends in chapter 11. In chapter 1237, Christ says, John says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They would not believe in him. Well, people might say, well, what about other verses that seem to teach that um, these signs were given to produce faith? Uh, some might quote again, John 20, 30 through 31. Jesus did these miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. They're written that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't that teach us that the purpose of these signs were to procure faith in an unbeliever? Well, I want you to notice a couple of things there. If you turn with me to John 20 again, I'm mean, flipping through a lot of verses today. Notice in verse 30 <clears throat> that Jesus performed these miracles in the presence of his disciples. John is not talking about other miracles. He's talking about the presence of his disciples. That's the focus of our Lord's miracles. It was for the believers. It would seem from this that the signs were intended primarily for his disciples. That's why it says in John 2.11, after the transformation of water into wine, the disciples believed in him. The master of the banquet did not believe. The people who drank the wine didn't believe. The crowds gathered around them didn't believe. Only the disciples believed in him. In that same chapter, John chapter 2, 18 through 19, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority, to cast out the money changers, to cast out the sacrifices? And Jesus says, I'll only give you one sign. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And later on, he heals, right? Remember that, our study? He heals the lame, the blind, the sick that are, that are gathered in the temple, but he doesn't consider them signs for the Jews. These aren't signs for you. I will give you only one sign. That is my resurrection. Um, one more verse. John 11.45. John 11.45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, sister of Lazarus, and many who had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Now from this verse, it seems like they saw the miracle and therefore they believed. Therefore, the purpose of the signs was to convince them and to procure faith in their souls. But this is faulty reasoning. Right? The faulty connection of cause and effect. This is a narrative. John is just describing what happened. These people came and saw the miracle and then they believed. But there is no teaching in the Bible that says that miracles or signs produce faith. No doctrine, no teaching that any miracle, sign, or powerful work of Christ ever produced faith. Main reason, right? It's a faulty idea. Why do I believe this? Um, Romans 10.17. Right. Turn with me to Romans 10.17. Okay. That's my cell phone ringing. <laughs> Don't they know I'm a pastor? 
I'm busy on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Gotta call that person back and have a talk. <laughs> Romans 10, 17. Again, the Bible never teaches that miracles or signs or wonders produce faith. In fact, that's, that idea is contrary to the rest of the New Testament. That idea is contrary to the whole evidence of the New Testament. Romans 10, 17, what does that teach us about where faith comes from? Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. How can we have faith to believe? How can an unbeliever have saving faith? It is not through an experience. It's not through seeing a miracle, experiencing some spiritual experience. It's by hearing the word of Christ. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's a basic definition of faith. Having assurance of what you don't see. Not only that, if I could remind you of the parable of another Lazarus, Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Remember that beggar, right? Um, that was lying next, lying in the, um, uh, um, right, right in front of the home of Lazarus, the rich man. He finally goes to uh, Sheol, uh, a place of agony and pain. And he tells Abraham, let me uh, be resurrected and go back and tell my brothers, my five brothers, let me warn them that they will not come to this place of torment. Let me tell them that God is true, that the Bible is real. Raise me from the dead so that I can warn them they will not come here. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He replies, Lazarus replies, no, Father Abraham. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If they see a miracle, someone who has died, come back to life, they will repent. And what does Abraham say? No. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they reject the Bible, someone could, someone could be part of the greatest miracle in the world, rising from the dead, and they still will not believe. Because signs and miracles aren't given to procure faith. They were given just to affirm those who already have faith. Now why all of this? Why did I go through all of this about signs and faith? Because today's text confirms this conclusion. Today's passage in John 4, 43 to 54, teaches us the connection between signs and genuine faith. Teaches us that signs weren't given to convince anyone of faith at all. It only confirms the faith already in existence. Let's go to the text, John chapter 4, verse 43. A brief background, our Lord was in Judea, he was in Jerusalem, performed signs and wonders, baptizing. His disciples were baptizing those who were coming to him in repentance. He left to go to his hometown, Galilee. He went through Samaria, had that dialogue with the Samaritan women in the well by Sychar. The Samaritans embraced Christ. They embraced the gospel message. They said, you are the savior of the world. And then he comes to his hometown in verse 43. And then in verse 44, he points out that 
that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He says the proverb that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This um, statement is reported in all the Gospels. It's found here as well, Matthew 13, Mark 6, Luke 4. It is found here as well. Galilee was indeed his hometown, his home region. This is where he had lived almost all his life. In fact, you're watching the news. There was a refugee camp called Janine that was attacked by uh, soldiers of Israel this past week. Well, Janine is about 20 miles away from Cana. It's in the region of Galilee. It is at this point our Lord's great Galilean ministry begins. And when he comes to his own town, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had all been there. They welcomed him. They received him. These were fellow pilgrims to Jerusalem. They had gone to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. While they were there, they saw the Lord perform miracles. Now that he came back, they embraced him. They welcomed him to themselves. Now, this is quite not what we expected, right? Because in verse 44, it says, No prophet is honor his own country. In verse 45, it says they welcomed him. What's going on here? It seems to be contradictory statements. Well, John is it's another example of John's irony, evangelist's irony. He doesn't explain it, but it is clearly, clearly shown later on that their enthusiasm towards Christ was based upon wrong motivations. They welcomed him not because he was the Messiah, not because he was the Son of God. They welcomed him because of what he could offer to them, what he could give them. He would, they were more concerned about what Christ could do for them rather than his true identity as the Son of God. Simply put, they, they welcomed him, but they did not worship him. There is a royal official in town. He heard that Jesus had come into town. Verse 46, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. The primary characters from now on are just these two men, the Lord and this royal official. Scholarly opinion says that this man was perhaps a subordinate ruler of Herod. Perhaps the governor of Galilee, governor of this whole region, a man of great prominence, a man of great authority. Well, he had a dire need. His son was, uh, son was uh, sick, near death, we are told. Verse 47. This man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea. He went to him and begged him to come and heal his son because he was close to death. And notice humility. Note the humility of this royal official. He does not go and order Jesus. He does not usurp the authority of Christ and by demanding that he come. He does not appeal to his earthly authority. He comes humbly and he begs. The verb there is an imperfect, imperfect tense. Conveys the idea of a persistent request. He kept on begging him, come with me, um, come with me to Judea, come with me so that you, you might heal my son, come with me to do Capernaum. He pressed his plea and he says that his boy is close to death. Our Lord's response is interesting. He says in verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. He is talking to 
the royal official, but he's addressing the crowds that are gathered around him. It's in plural. Jesus is pointing out that the people of Galilee, they were lacking true faith. They were looking for the spectacular. They, were, they sought him out only because they loved the sensational. He says, unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe. In the Greek, it's a double negative. It's a never ever believe. It's a strong negation of true faith. For these people, signs and wonders were an absolute necessity. And they would not believe apart from them. I like what the Living Bible Version says in verse 48. Living Bible translates it as, Won't any of you believe in me unless I do more and more miracles? They were never satisfied. They wanted more and more. One miracle wasn't enough. Two wasn't enough. They wanted more and more. I think John is contrasting the false faith of the Galileans with the true faith of the Samaritans. Samaritans believed in Christ without a single miracle. They believed just by his words. They believed in his words. The Galileans demanded miracles. While our Lord's reply to this man sounds harsh, but he is testing him. He is testing his faith. What will he do? The persistence of the official in verse 49. The royal official responds, Sir, come down before my child dies. Come down. Cana was 700 feet above sea level. Capernaum was right by the Sea of Galilee. Literally, come down. A 20-mile journey. Come to my home so that you will heal my son before he dies. He says, Sir, curie, master, lord, a, a, a term of a reverence, of respect. Sir, come down and heal my son. He does not defend himself. He does not argue about signs and wonders. He simply urges Jesus to do something before the child dies. And the word child is paideon, a diminutive form of child. It means my little lad. It means my young son. My precious child. The official was in no, he had no desire to argue theologically. All he could plead was for mercy. He begged Jesus to come with him. I mean, can you sense desperation? I mean, all the fathers here, I think you can understand what is... To, to lose your son and to beg for his life. Look at our Lord's response. You may go, your son will live. Verse 50. The NIV, when it says you may go, that's incorrect. That's a faulty translation. NASB, King James Version says go your way. And that's right because it's a command. In the Greek, it's an imperative. He's not saying you may go. He's saying go. Go now, your son will live. To the royal official, this reply must have been totally unexpected. He had been urging him, come with me, so that you might heal, heal my son. It was a reasonable thought that he needs to be present to heal the son, heal, heal his son. But our Lord's words impose a stiff test. Our Lord gave him no sign. Our Lord gave him nothing but his own words to hold on to. He says, will you believe in my words? And then look at verse 50, the second part. Here we see the essence of true faith. I love this verse. I love the NIV version here. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man took Jesus at his words and departed. NASB says, he, the man believed the word Jesus said. 
RSV, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. NIV, the man took Jesus for his word. And he went. Here we understand. Here it teaches us the essence of faith. The basic nature of faith, guys. It's not faith plus anything, Jesus' words plus anything else. It's taking God's word at its face value. Believing in the word of God, that is faith. It is not believing God's word and signs, believing God's word and miracles or experiences or anything else externally. It's Jesus' words alone. The Galileans had the word of Christ, but they wanted more. They wanted miracles. They wanted signs and wonders. Jesus tested this man's faith. Was it genuine or was it false? Was it trusting in the words of Christ and words of Christ alone? That is the basic essence of faith. If we were to go to the father of faith, the hero of faith, it would be Abraham. Listen to what Paul says concerning Abraham's faith in Romans 4, 20-21. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith as he gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. All those years waiting for a son, even at a hundred years old, he grew in his faith. Why? Not because God gave him certain signs, wonders, and miracles. Because he believed in the promises of God. That's the basic nature of faith. Secondly, we see... Um, a major characteristic. We, furthermore, we see three characteristics of faith. The man departed. The man left. The man obeyed the word of Christ without seeing the sign. Jesus healed, but he refused to be present for the healing. He believed and he left. And it teaches us that true faith obeys. And when you obey, that is a sign of true faith. He didn't ask for anything else. He immediately departed and he obeyed and he went. Martin Luther says this, The true living faith which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart cannot be idle. Jerry Bridges in The Pursuit of Holiness says, Faith and obedience are inextricably linked. Obeying the commands of God always involves believing the promises of God, end quote. They are linked together. If you believe, you obey. If you obey, you, that means you believe. One more quote, A.W. Tozer. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of a single coin. Let me quote to you from the Bible. James chapter 2, verses 17 to 26. James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it is dead. It is a non-faith. He says, uh, verse 22, the faith of Abraham and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 24, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And he concludes by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So faith without deeds is dead. This royal official pleads for Christ to come. Christ says, go, your son will li live. The official's response, he takes Jesus at his words. He believes the Lord. And how do we know he believes? Because he goes. He doesn't wait for some sign. He leaves. And then notice on verse 51. He is, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. We find that in verse 52. This is the next day. When did this happen? Last night, 7 p.m. So he was on his way for a whole day. Here's the next mark of true faith. Perseverance. Next mark of true faith, perseverance. I suppose he doubted while he was walking away. What am I doing? My son, I'm, I'm signing my son's death certificate here. On his way, maybe he was tempted to go back. Maybe I didn't press hard enough. Maybe I should have forced him. Maybe I should have grabbed him by his arms and made him come with me. Well, though he might have doubted, though he might have been tempted, he didn't turn back. He continued on his way towards home, all the while, I believe, remembering the words of Christ. Your son will live. Your son will live. Your son will live. Holding on to the word of God. Next day, he finds out that God's word has come to pass. True faith always perseveres. True faith. You know, we have this idea, once saved, always saved. That is not... That's correct, but I think a poor way of putting it. I would put it, if you're truly saved, you're always persevering. Another way, if you're truly saved, you are preserved by God. So if you say, yeah, I used to believe, but I'm not persevering today. I'm not walking with Christ today. You need to question the genuineness of your salvation. Because a mark, a characteristic of true faith is that it's perseverance or that God preserves the Christian. Well, as he journeyed on, his servants met and gave him the good news. When did this happen? Yesterday at the seventh hour. Roman time system, 7 p.m. Exact time when Christ said, your son will live. And here's the final mark of true faith, verse 53. He and all his household believed. Here is evangelism. Right. Evangelism. You know, I, if, I were, if I was reading this gospel account for, for the first time, I would be afraid in light of just the responses of the Galileans and responses of the Jews at, at, at Jerusalem. Oh, my son will live great. And he lived happily ever after. Right. When I hear about Christians going through trial, you know, I don't really worry. But when I hear about Christians being blessed, young Christians especially, I worry. Because blessings have a tendency to cause us to forget about Christ. Right? When good things happen. We get caught up with the blessing and we forget God. Don't we fear the same thing for this man? My son will live great. And he lived happily ever after. But that's not what happened. So he and all his household believed. He evangelized to his whole household. All the servants, his wife, to his children. He shared with them the true identity of Jesus. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. A mark of genuine faith. Well, in spite of that cell phone call, 
Hope that you are still with me. We close our time with just four thoughts, four simple thoughts that we close with. Do you take the Bible at its face value? Are you taking Jesus at his word? Or are you looking for an external confirmation of the Bible? Are you seeking an experience that would confirm the truthfulness of the scriptures? Or maybe it's science. Or maybe it's psychology. Or maybe it's uh, pragmatism. Does it work? Well, if you add anything, you are like the Galileans. You are like the Jews in, in Jerusalem looking for signs. These things are given not to give you faith. These things are given to us. We have experiences, right? Our experiences confirm the veracity of the Bible. I mean, the Bible works. It brings blessing. But they are not to procure faith in non-believers. They are to affirm the believers. But if you are looking for these things, then you have false faith. Right. Will you hold and believe in the Bible alone for its, uh, for its own sake, saying, let the Bible be true and every man a liar? Secondly, you know if you're taking the Bible for its face value if you're obeying the Bible. If you just simply obey. That's, all, that's the bottom line, guys. You know if you're waiting for something else if you're not obeying. But you know you're believing in the words of Christ if you're obeying the precepts of Scripture. Thirdly, is there a sense of perseverance? Are you persevering in the faith? And then finally, are you evangelizing the lost? Right. If you're fixated on these external signs, you will not be evangelizing. You'll be seeking more signs. Guaranteed. If you're a Christian today and your testimony is, I'm a Christian because I experienced something, and I spoke in tongues, or I dreamt something, or I saw a vision, that'll be your fixation for the rest of your Christian life. That's all you'll be doing. Seeking more and more experiences. But if your faith is based upon the identity of Christ, that He is the promised Messiah, that He is the Son of God, then you will share that. You'll proclaim that to your household and to the world. Let's pray.